Hello and welcome back to Historical, where we do quickfire history that looks into the things that have been said, sung and scribbled down since the beginning of time. Today, we're turning to the Tudors, always good value the Tudors, and giving our attention to some of the many things, mostly untrue, that have been said about the infamous Flanders mayor. So, for anyone who isn't completely obsessed with this period of history, Anne of Cleves is a relatively obscure figure, which is interesting because she was a Queen of England, and not Dark Ages, Alfred the Great, funny haircuts era England, but Henry VIII, Cromwell, still funny haircuts era England. That more people don't know more about her isn't entirely unsurprising. There are fewer books and films devoted to her than to some of the others, and she was married to the king for only six months. Now, in normal circumstances, that might be considered an abysmal failure of a marriage. But the married life of one of history's most notorious serial husbands, or serial killers, let's circle back to that idea, that isn't exactly normal circumstances. And if you're marrying this guy, the measure of success is not how willing he's going to be to squeeze the toothpaste from the bottom of the tube. At the moment of this marriage, the odds stand thus. One in three chance, left to die alone and unloved. One in three chance, left to die alone and badly loved. And one in three chance, brutally murdered for something you definitely didn't do and something else you probably didn't do. So none of the outcomes are great. And in light of that, with the benefit of rather a lot of hindsight and the freedom to discuss the monarchy without being beheaded, Anne of Cleves may actually have been the most successful of all six of the wives. She didn't get off to a good start, though, even by the standards of the day. Henry VIII famously stormed out of their first meeting and declared, I like her not, and then proceeded to tell Thomas Cromwell to get him out of the marriage, come hell or high water. Unfortunately, neither of those things came, and Cromwell's head was neatly removed from his shoulders and put into a box, from which Henry no doubt assumed he would find it less convenient to meddle in his love life. But those famous words, I like her not, are actually not the beginning of the story, but the end of a different one. Let's set the scene. Henry VIII has buried three wives already. Actually, he didn't bother burying the first two, because he'd gone off them by then. His first wife, Catherine, got the chuck for not giving him a son, although she did in fact have three sons, none of whom survived. He then developed a burning passion for Anne Boleyn, for whom he toppled the Roman Catholic Church in England and wrote some rather dreadful poetry. But it turned out, as it so often does, that all of the things that made Anne Boleyn a firecracker of a love interest completely grated him in a wife, which of course was entirely her fault. Also, she had, unforgivably, chosen to give him a daughter instead of a son. So... He had her head cut off just to show how cross he was. The next day, he got engaged to Jane Seymour, who was everything that Anne Boleyn was not. Fair, plain, quiet, and not given to throwing things at him when he had affairs with her friends. She did give him a son, and then she had the good sense to pop off of this mortal coil before he had the chance to publicly humiliate her any more than he already had. He mourned her thoroughly and wholeheartedly for about a month, at which point he started wondering whether he hadn't better set his mind to getting another wife for the children. Now, the interesting thing about Anne of Cleves 
was that she was the first of Henry's wives that hadn't actually been chosen by him himself. He had volunteered to go marry Catherine because he liked the idea of himself sweeping in to rescue her out of her poverty and widowhood, and he probably liked the idea of getting one over his dead big brother, who had married her first. He then pursued Anne for years, and then went after Jane. But by the time he got round to his fourth marriage, the burning necessity of a son was a little less urgent, although he was quite keen on having a backup, and the problem of political alliances was looming. Anne of Cleves was suggested as a bargaining chip to make an ally of the Duke of Cleves in case the English were attacked by their Roman Catholic neighbours. Hans Holbein, already a celebrated artist, was dispatched to paint a picture of the 25-year-old Anne and came back with quite a charming portrait of a pretty and demure-looking young lady. Henry liked it so much that he agreed to marry her and she was told to pack her bags. Unfortunately, Henry despite his track record, was a bit of a romantic. He was obsessed with the stories and songs touting those traditions of courtly love, and the idea of an arm's-length political marriage to someone he'd never even met didn't really do it for him. Even more unfortunately, one of these stories had the remedy for just such an occasion. The man would disguise himself, usually as a servant, and present himself to his arranged bride, who would be so overcome by love at first sight that she would immediately see through the disguise, recognising her one true love, and probably throw in a nice swoon for good measure. If you're thinking, good grief, this man is supposed to be intelligent enough to run a country, how can he go in for such utter bulge? Well, you're not wrong. But this game had been played throughout the fancier and more French courts in Europe for many years, and Henry was always very heavily influenced by the French. The women were usually forewarned, but if they weren't, they recognised the king anyway because they lived in the same palace. Now, not to draw any mass generalisations from this, but the German nobility didn't really go in for this sort of idiocy, and Anne of Cleves had never seen the king before. What she had seen was a portrait of the king in his prime, young, tall, muscular and extremely handsome. She'd also heard all the reports of him as the handsomest prince in Christendom. Whether that was ever true is obviously up for debate, but it certainly was not true now. Henry had suffered a jousting injury that left him with constantly infected ulcers. To avoid blood poisoning, these had to be kept open almost all the time and drained frequently, which was obviously excruciating. But it also meant that everywhere he went he carried the odour of rotting flesh with him. On top of that, he was nowhere near the athlete he'd once prided himself on being. And he coped with the stress of all of this by eating and drinking himself into a stupor as often as possible, shouting at people, chopping off heads, and being generally unpleasant. By the time of his marriage to the second Anne, he was all but unrecognisable as the prince he had once been. Regrettably, nobody close to him was brave enough to mention this and he seems not to have noticed his expanding waistline and dwindling appeal. In his mind, and it's actually quite tragic, really, but in his mind and his imagination, he was still the man of 22 that everyone loved and no woman could resist. Sir Henry decided to dress up as a servant with a bunch of his mates and surprise Anne en route to London, expecting that she would fall instantly in love with him and then faint with joy at the thought of the upcoming nuptials. 
Anne, obviously, did no such thing. For one thing, she had been fully briefed in the matter of good behaviour in her new country, with particular stress laid on the small matter of what happened to women who offended the English king. For another, the ageing fat man attempting to grope her bore absolutely no resemblance to this prince she'd been told to expect. She treated him with cool politeness when he was introduced, and then spurned his advances when he tried to grab her for a cheeky snog. In very mature fashion, Henry stormed off in a strop and had a quick wardrobe change. When he came back, he not only looked like the king, but somebody had whispered the rules of the game to Anne, who fell to her knees and apparently made a very pretty speech. But the damage was done. Henry had been humiliated publicly. More than that, he had been forced to gaze into the mirror of Anne's reaction, probably the only person to have given him an honest account of himself since he became so free with the chopping block. He left her rooms proclaiming those famous words, I like her not, and proceeded to tell the rest of Europe how he felt about it. He also told them that she was far too ugly for him to actually consummate the marriage. Now, to his limited credit, he wasn't actually the one to call her the Flanders mare. That name only came about in the 17th century, but he did bemoan a variety of her body parts publicly enough for it to be completely humiliating. He also suggested that Holbein's portrait had been painted to flatter her, and that there was nothing about her looks or mind or personality that could induce him to make her his wife. He obviously did not ask himself if there was anything about his looks or mind or personality, etc. So at this point, you might be wondering why on earth anyone in their right mind would describe this marriage as a success. And it certainly wasn't, as great love stories go. But Anne, whatever Henry may have told the world, was shrewd enough to take a good deal when she saw one. So when Henry asked to annul the marriage and offered to make her his beloved sister instead, she took the deal. As the king's sister, she was given an extremely generous allowance, a house, and the freedom to live alone. She outlived him and all of his other wives. Now, no man could risk offending Henry to marry her, so it may have been a lonely life, but it was at least one free from the control of a husband or a father or a brother, which was no small thing for a woman at that time. And for all that he liked her not, the king developed a quite sweet friendship with Anne. She developed a taste for English beer and remained friends with all of his children. And, for the record, nobody but Henry ever called her ugly. And for all that Hans Holbein was accused of exaggerating her looks, he was allowed to keep his paintbrush and his head. Which just goes to show. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Historical. If you enjoyed yourself, please head over to your streaming platform of choice and hit that subscribe button, leave us a review and a rating, and join us again next week, same time, same place, every Tuesday.